Good morning. How are you? It's so good to be with you. And so, hey, thanks for everybody last night. Anybody come last night to the Johnny Cash thing? Thank you for coming. That was a lovely evening. It's always good to be back. My wife, Jan, is not here with me. Um, last night, I felt like it was missing because when Jana comes and we do the Johnny Cash thing, we always sing Jackson together. Um, do you guys know that? Yeah. yeah okay. So it's not probably a good song to sing as a married couple, but anyway, if you know the song, listen to it later on. Um, but those, the two people in the song are having some marital issues. Uh, you're going to read it, but um, as Jonathan said, I want to share like how we can get a gospel message out of Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of good news in the book, but I hope to show you where I find some good news in it. And to do that, I want to read you a headline from a newspaper, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, um, the newspaper out of Seattle, in 2010 had this headline. Okay, This is where we're going to begin today. This headline. Police alerted to superheroes patrolling Seattle. That was the headline. And the first line of the article was this. Vigilante justice has come to Seattle... And the Cape Crusaders are driving a Kia. <laughs> so what had, what had happened in Seattle was that citizens of that city had begun dressing up like superheroes, complete with masks and capes, taking to the streets at night to kind of help stop crime uh, in, in Seattle. And they had their own... Uh, so here are some of the, the real-life superheroes. They had names like the Green Reaper, Gemini, uh, Catastrophe, Thunder 88, and Phoenix Jones, right? So they had their own names, and they had their own costumes. Um, and if you went to the website, like you're like, oh, I totally need to do this on the weekend, you could sign up, uh, and you could go to the Rain City Superheroes website, and, and they had kind of you know, their mission statement. And this is what they wrote on their website. A real-life super, superhero, like not, not, not one on TV, but real-life superheroes, is, is a person who ever chooses to embody, right, uh, the values presented in hero comic books, not only by donning your mask and costume, but by performing good deeds for the place in which you inhabit. Now, I was really worried about putting this before you, um, because my, my concern is uh, that like in a month or two, you all are going to wake up to the newspapers here in Little Rock and read, local preacher dressed like Superman <laughs> patrolling downtown Little Rock. Are you all aware of Jonathan's Superman issues? Okay, yeah. So, so I... I was like, I probably shouldn't read this out loud because I think it's going to happen, you know. So maybe Jonathan will gather some of you all up and um, you all patrol downtown Little Rock uh, together. Now, if you don't know, if you really want to do a deep dive into the real, right, the real life superheroes thing, um, the journalist uh, Jonathan Weinberg has done a podcast about this phenomenon in Seattle. And the name of the podcast, wherever you get your podcast, is called the Superhero Complex. Somebody followed that podcast? It's a fascinating, interesting, I'm a psychologist, so I found it fascinating to go down that rabbit hole about what would motivate people to go out 
dress like Batman and Superman and patrol the streets of Seattle. A lot of them were just trying to, you know, be crime stoppers. If they saw something happening, they would call the police or they might intervene with a bar fight, you know. Some, some took it in a more humanitarian direction. Uh, they dressed up like Batman and Superman, but they took care of the homeless. They handed out um, food on the, on the street. But it makes you, you know, wonder, why would anybody need to dress up in spandex to hand out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like, it doesn't seem like you have to do that. Like, what drives people to that? And as I listened to that podcast, The Superhero Complex, it reminded me of a very famous book in my discipline. 1967, a book was written by the psychologist Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. And in The Denial of Death, Becker said, you know, in the face of death, um, and, and, we, we, and, and when we look at the cosmos... And we, when we see our lives as perhaps insignificant, the, the great motivating force, Becker argued, in our lives, as he said, is a quest or thirst for the heroic. And what he means by this thirst for the heroic is that we're all trying in the face of death to, to make our lives matter, to, to fill our lives with meaning and value and significance. So we're all engaged in a, in a journey of self-esteem enhancement in some way, that we're all thirsting to be heroes. We all have, Becker says, our own superhero complex. And the way I describe it to my college students is that we're all playing what I call a hero game. And a, your hero game and my hero game is that there's some arena of our life where there is a a game that we're playing, and that if we can win this game, this game will confer upon us like meaning and status and and significance. Your game is different from my game. We all have, though, a superhero uh, complex, right? These are the games that we play in our workplaces and in our gyms. These, These are games we play among our friends who share like a hobby or a common interest, We compare how much weight we can lift on a bench press or how much weight we can lose on a scale. We pay attention to who gets promoted at work and who doesn't get promoted. Maybe you are into gardening or your whiskey collection. Maybe you have a fashion sense or you have followers on Twitter. Maybe you have a great taste in music. Maybe you're a creative person and an artist. Maybe you're good at Wordle. Or you always win your fantasy football league. Um, maybe, you know, you're, you're winning your handicap game out on the golf course. As I like to tell my students, you know, like, how, do you, how do you find your, your particular hero game? I'll tell my students this. I say, everybody is a snob about something. Right? Everybody's a snob about it. There's, there's, there's this one little area of our life that we kind of have... It's a, it's, a, it's a location where we can stand out, step up on a pedestal, be in the spotlight a little bit. We all have a game that we're, we are playing, where we are considered the best, where we can show off, where we can be the expert in the room. And then, you know, think about the hero games that come from your families of origin, right? I grew up with Richard and Paula Beck. I knew very much in my family what that hero game looked like to be a part of that family. Every family instills in us a vision of what a winning life looks like. Maybe 
that winning life is financial success with ski vacations in Colorado. Perhaps winning the game of life is that big family portrait where everybody's wearing white shirts and khakis and we're all standing on the beach. We put it above the fireplace. Maybe the hero game in your family was that, you know, that you went off and got a college degree, got married and you had kids. And so the approval of our parents becomes the scorecard of that game. And we sense if we're winning or losing in the sibling rivalries that we have as we watch our siblings maybe succeed in the eyes of our parents and we we are maybe more of a disappointment, right? We're all playing some version of a hero game. And so the question this morning is, what's your superhero complex? Now, one of the interesting things that I've noticed amongst my students as a, as a college professor, I watch kind of how the hero games play out amongst my students. And one of the things I've been interested in is the way fan culture and entertainment culture has been used as a vehicle for my, my students, their own superhero complexes, the way they get deeply immersed and invested in entertainment and fan culture. Maybe you've seen this, but there's some really weird pathologies that are happening out there in entertainment and fan culture. Let me give you just two examples of this. In like 2013, there was this thing that went around called Gamergate, this big uproar in the video game community. Gamergate was kicked off by a woman named Zoe Quinn, who kind of leveled some feminist criticisms of the way women are portrayed in a lot of video games. And for just leveling those criticisms, the video game culture freaked out. And what do I mean by freaked out? Quinn and the other women who made that criticism became the the targets of an online harassment campaign. They received death threats, rape threats, nude photos of the women were shared with their families and their co-workers. Their their, uh, social media accounts were hacked. Both their friends and their family accounts were hacked. As Quinn shared at a gaming conference, she said, you know, I used to come to these gaming events and feel like I was coming home, right? That this was my nerdy family. And now it's just like, are any of the people currently in the room the people that said online that they wanted to beat me to death. This is over video games, right? And as a psychologist, I'm kind of curious. I'm like, well, what, what is that? There isn't there, there's like this asymmetry between the thing we're talking about, video games, and death threats. What, what's going on with that? Another example of this, Star Wars fans. You guys ever encountered a Star Wars fan? Oh, my. Um, uh, now, now, admittedly, I'm kind of a Star Wars fan. So, like, my, me and my sons go down the Star Wars rabbit hole. My wife kind of checks out, like, oh, here, here they go. And, and, um, except Baby Yoda. She's in on Baby Yoda. Like, my wife is totally a fan. It's the only Star Wars character she cares about is Baby Yoda. Um, but if you might have followed this. If you're a Star Wars fan, you might recall the controversy surrounding the film The, the Last Jedi. Anybody know about this? The film The Last Jedi came out and Star Wars fans hated it. They hated what was done in that movie. Hated it so much, they started sending death threats to the actors and the actresses and the director of that film. They had completely lost their minds. And Rian Johnson, the director of the film, he says, before I made the movie The Last Jedi, I had never had anybody hate me on the internet, right? Hate because you didn't like a film. And so it's kind of interesting, like, what, what's going on there? 
Why, what's going on with fan culture? Why are people dressing up like comic book characters in Seattle? Um, a journalist, Frederick DeBoer, suggests that it's the superhero complex, but now given kind of a capitalistic twist. This is what he writes. He goes, famously, in the 20th century, we saw a collapse of meaning. Like, meaning is harder for us in the modern world. Between the wars and the atrocities of this century that were both horrifying and absurd, and the diminished role of religion in our lives, it has become harder to simply exist with a stable identity that represented your true and real essence. And so into that void, right, into that vacuum of meaning came capitalism. Because if you can't generate real meaning or psychological security in your life, Amazon would be more than happy to sell it to you. Through, in the modern world, multiple times a day, my students, some of you, right, through movies and, and TV shows and comic books and video games, we are addictively absorbing content that contains morals and aesthetics and attitude, the kind of things that feel like meaning. Unfortunately, this can have the effect of fooling oneself into thinking that consuming these representations of meaning is the same thing as having meaning. It's kind of like fake pseudo-meaning. I can fictionally inhabit this imaginative world where I can actually pretend while I'm playing my game or watching my movie, I could pretend that I am kind of, well, a superhero. He goes on to say this. I think a lot of nerds, and he says that affectionately, I think a lot of nerds um, have fallen into the trap of thinking that liking Marvel movies is a personality. And this is a lot, a lot of my students are. That they, that they are, okay, increasingly in a capitalistic society, we, we are falling under the illusion that we are the things we like. Right? That's how we create a personality. By being a fan of this thing. And that, right, that fandom confers meaning in my life. And that's why we see these outsized reactions because these Marvel movies or a Star Wars movie isn't just a movie. It is integral to who I am as a person. I fill the void of my life with a movie franchise. We have steeped ourselves so fully inside these products that when we think of them, we start to think of ourselves. I love it so much, it must be me. But this is a mistake. Because liking Star Wars simply is not a solid foundation for your personality. The human psyche needs more fundamental codes of commitments and values to work with. And Star Wars really isn't in your control. So if you give yourself over to it, and somebody does something to it, 
Your whole world is going to get rocked existentially. And that's where the death threats come from. Just ask the people who hated the last Jedi. These properties, no matter how sophisticated they are or how beloved they are to you and I, they just can't contain enough substance to anchor a sense of self. So we live in these fictional universes where we can live out our own superhero complex. The other thing I've noticed about the hero games in our life, though, is how insidious they are. We play a game. Maybe your game is one of the ones I mentioned earlier. It's your hobby that has taken too much of a significance in your life, like winning your fantasy football league. Or maybe it's work, or maybe it's your weight. Whatever Whatever that arena of value and meaning is where you're playing your particular game, Um, one of the things I've noticed in my own life is how just when you think you're winning your game, you kind of find out you're losing your game. So let me give you kind of a personal story of my own hero game. So I'm a college professor. So in my line of work, there's a particular way of achieving success. There's a way to be good at what I do. And it has different metrics. Like you guys have metrics in your lines of work. And so like what are the metrics of winning the the hero game of being a college professor. Well, I can get my students to like me. And, and I see that every semester, at the end of the semester, when I look at my uh, uh, student evaluations. You know, what do you think of the class? And what do you think of Dr. Beck? And I can watch those metrics. And my, my college helpfully ranks us in our departments. <laughs> right? That doesn't make anybody a little neurotic. You know? But, you know, and that's funny, but think about if you were at the bottom of your ranking in your department, and you get that information and go like, kind of, hey, you're kind of losing, <laughs> right? You're kind of losing your hero game. And then everybody on the top of that hero game is like, I'm awesome, totally winning. So that's one way to win my game. The other way is like, like uh, publishing, to, to, to write articles and to publish in journals, And I don't know if you know this, but in my world, there are worse journals and better journals, more prestigious games. And so just when you think you've won, I've published an article. They're like, what journal is it in? That's a lame journal. Like, this is a better journal. Like, ah, so now I got to. So even that game is one I can climb. But the pinnacle, the Mount Everest of the college professor hero game is to publish a book. Right? We go out there and, and we look at our peers who or authors and publish books. And so I was like, I wish I could write a book. And for 10 years of my life, I, I never got an offer to write a book. And so I kind of felt I wasn't really winning my hero game. You know, many of my colleagues had published books and I'd never been an author of a book. And I just kind of wanted to hold a book in my hand and have my name on the front cover. And then one day, about 12 years ago, an, a publisher reached out to me and said, would you like to publish a book? And I go, interestingly, I would. I would. So I'm put on my mask and my cape and I write my first book and I remember getting it in the mail and I was like, there it is. One winner, winner. I'm at the top of the Professor Hero game. And that lasted like 30 seconds <laughs> because people then started asking me like, how's your book selling? And, and, and Amazon very helpfully has a thing called a sales rank. And, and that gets in your head. You're like, well, uh, not very well, okay? I published a book, but now nobody's reading my book, okay? 
And I notice that other people have best-selling books, and your book is not a bestseller. So I realized just when I thought I had won, it's like the Godfather. You remember the Godfather? Just when you get out, what happens? They pull you back in, right? I had just, I had just won. I was an author. And I moved into this whole other hero game of being an author and realized, oh, there's all different other kinds of metrics. I had been winning a minute ago, and now I'm losing all over again. And you know what's really helpful to the self-esteem of an author? Book reviews. <laughs> so now <laughs> these strangers logging on to Amazon or Goodreads, writing about me and my books. And some people will say some very interesting things, right? So, for example, I've, I've brought to you uh, one of my favorite reviews of my books. This is written by Victoria Weinstein. So, Victoria, if you're out there, thank you so much. Um, this is on Goodreads. Or about one of my, and here's the fascinating thing about feedback. Like, we know this is psychologists, right? How, like, it takes 20 compliments to offset just one criticism. I don't pay attention. This book is currently... And the fact that I even know this tells you how deeply neurotic I am. But this, this book is currently a 4.7 out of 5. You'd think I'd be winning. Except the thing you fixate on is what Victoria Weinstein had to say about my writing. She writes about me. This is a plodding, dull approach to a fascinating subject. Oh, I'm leaning in. I'm going to tell me more. Um, Beck's sentence structure. I like how she refers to me as Beck. Beck's sentence structure. Like, Victoria, I'm a human being, okay? Beck's sentence structure is repetitive and pedantic. And his tone is that of a youth minister lecturing to a group of eighth graders. Boring. And she puts boring in all caps. So she was really leaning in on that. Boring. Beck relies on italics. The horror. He relies on italics to enliven his prose. But it doesn't help. So, she continues, don't bother with this one unless you're a youth minister in which I think you might find this to be a good resource. First of all, I don't know what Victoria has about youth ministers. <laughs> but clearly, she's, you know, just when you think you're winning, like you're, you're losing, you know. Have you guys felt that in your own hero game? You know, the hero game of your children, like you're trying to win the hero game of children. And you think, if I could just get to them at 18, I'll stop worrying about them. How many of you guys have children over 18? Have you stopped worrying about them? You just go from one hero game to another, you know. You work your whole life to get a good job, get a, get a promotion, and then you start playing that game, and you realize, oh, that's a whole other game I'm playing. And even if you won your fantasy football league, there is next year, right? So we all get sucked in. And so what is Ecclesiastes trying to to tell us about our superhero complex. This is where I think the good news of Ecclesiastes comes to us as a message of, of grace. Let me give you an image of what I think Ecclesiastes is doing. So one day, I came out um, uh, 
uh, to the car, and I noticed like one of the tires was a little bit flat. Not completely flat, just a little bit flat. So it wasn't so flat that I needed to replace the tire or call AAA. But neither was it so full that I didn't want to drive. Like I didn't want to, you know, I was in between, you know. And so I really didn't want to drive it to the gas station and pump it up on the flat tire, but it wasn't so flat that I needed to change it. So I felt kind of stuck. And I I wish I had had one of those little things you plug, you know, those little machines that will inflate your tire at home. I didn't have one of those. But I was standing there wishing I had one of those little machines to put some air in my tire. And then I was, as, as I was staring at the tire, tire, I noticed something. I was like, hey, the valve of that car tire is the exact same valve size for a bike tire. Like my bike pump could pump up this tire. It's, it would work. So I go off to the shed and I get out my bike pump and I hook it up. And I start, you know, pumping up my bike tire. Now, my wife had a friend at that time um, that was over at the house. And, and she noticed, she's like, what's your husband out doing out there? Because I'm just working on this bike tire. Because what I discovered that day is two things. One, you can totally pump up a car tire with a bike pump. The second thing I learned is it is exhausting. Has anyone ever tried this? It was like in the summertime in Texas, it's like 100 degrees, and I'm out there just, you know. And my wife, her friend says, what's your husband doing out there? He's just going crazy on this bike pump. My wife looks out like, apparently, this genius that I'm married to is apparently trying to pump up the flat tire, you know, with a bike pump. And it's going about as well as you would think, you know, okay. So... This is what I think Ecclesiastes is trying to help us with. Here's my point. That void in your life, that empty hole that we're trying to fill, right? We attach that superhero complex to it. and It's like that bike pump. And we spend our lives furiously pumping away at whatever game it is that we're trying to win. Okay? And there we are, just trying to inflate our lives with meaning. And some of them are stupid and trivial like Star Wars, okay? And some of them are kind of meaningful, like, like trying to win the, the career game, the educational game. I see my students furiously pumping at the bike pump. If I could just get to grad school. But games are insidious. They're going to get to grad school and they're going to start playing that game. And then they're going to get out. They're going to start playing the professional career. It's it's never ending. And so, my brothers and sisters, let me just ask you this. Aren't you tired? Aren't you wearied playing that game? Just furiously trying to inflate your life with meaning and purpose and value. Constantly terrified that... The air is running out. That we will lose in some way. That Victoria Weinstein will show up and trash your life work. You know, and the air is just rushing out of your self-esteem. Like, do you, it's exhausting to keep doing that. And it's in, it's in the fatigue of our superhero complex that the message of Ecclesiastes comes to us as grace. Well, how so? 
Let me make this argument for you. You're going through Lent in a series on Ecclesiastes, and Jonathan introduced it really well last week. Here's my, here's my take on how to read Ecclesiastes. I think you make a really good argument. The number one spiritual concern in the Old Testament right, uh, is idolatry. Idolatry. The, the, the Shema, the greatest commandment, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that issue of turning away to false gods and worshiping other things and the idols is the number one concern. And so all through the Old Testament, there's this passionate concern about loving God first. And for most of the Old Testament, the criticism of idolatry is framed as one of like unfaithfulness and infidelity. Right? That you've turned your love away from your first love toward these lesser loves And that criticism of unfaithfulness is typically very hot if you read through the prophets. There's an anger and a hotness to the critique of our idolatry. And I would argue one of the interesting ways to read Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes is still very much preoccupied with the issue of idolatry. It agrees. But Ecclesiastes is going to attack idolatry in a very different way from like maybe Amos or Hosea might attack it. Where Amos and Hosea and the prophets are going to be hot and angry about our unfaithfulness, Ecclesiastes goes after our idols, goes after our hero games and the superhero complex with something very different, and that is weariness. It's not anger for being unfaithful. It is a weariness of pumping away at the bike pump and the futility of the hero project, that it's perceived as... Well, what, is the, what does the preacher say? What does it feel like to chase after these, these false idols? It feels like this in verse 2 of chapter 1. It feels like vanity of vanities. All of these hero games, and the, the preacher will talk about all the different bike pumps he goes after in the book. But all of it is vanity. Because what do you gain by all that toil that we toil at under the sun? And in verse 14 of chapter 1, the preacher says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. I have beheld all of the hero games that we play. Every superhero complex has been tested and tried, and what is the conclusion of all of these hero games? It is that all is vanity and is striving after the wind. And so the good news of Ecclesiastes is, don't you feel tired? The weariness of it all, the futility of it all. Step away from your bike pump. Whatever you're so desperately trying to infuse your life with meaning, step away from that. It will be never-ending and exhausting. And so the, the move, and this is why you're looking at Ecclesiastes during Lent, because there is here in the message a renunciation, okay? A negation, a backing away from the futility. It's a season of discernment. What have we been investing our meaning and our self-esteem in? That is exhausting us. But we're aiming toward Easter, though. Right? That it's just not stepping away from the bike pump. Like, then what's going to fill that flat tire? 
And I want to end with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul's like, hey, you want to play a hero game? You want to hear about my superhero complex? At his time and his place, this is what it sounded like. You want to play? Let's play. Though I myself, verse 4, though I myself have confidence for the flesh, if anyone thinks they have a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I can beat you. Okay? If you published a book, mine is outselling yours. If you got student evaluations, mine are higher than yours. Okay? And what is his hero game? I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness through the law, blameless. And maybe you're here today going, I don't know what any of that means. But all you know, you all, but you can hear the game though. There is a game being played there. But on the road to Damascus, when he meets the risen Lord Jesus, the superhero complex of the Apostle Paul died that day. He steps away from the bike pump and he receives something to fill him. And he says this, but whatever gain I had in playing that game, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss. He steps away. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash. He takes the game and he drops it into the trash. In order that I might gain. So the, the, not the futility of Ecclesiastes chasing the wind, right? Because that's the refrain of Ecclesiastes. What gain is there in this? And the answer is none. But Paul speaks of a gain. But it is a gain not found in himself, but a gain that is, comes to us, but I might gain Christ. And the word that we have for that is grace. And so, brothers and sisters, what is your superhero complex? Because you're playing some kind of game. You are a snob about something. The invitation of this season and of this book is to look at the weariness of that, the futility of it, and to step away. Treat that game as loss. But to receive then in that space a value and a worth and a meaning that is not of your own effort or making, but we simply receive as grace, as the simple truth of who we are. That is the good news in Ecclesiastes. You don't have to be a superhero. So hang your capes up. Okay? Hang your capes up. And receive the gain that is Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come into this space this morning a tired people, tired from all the ways that we try to matter, the ways we try to succeed, the way we try to be popular, the try to, ways we try to be attractive to others, to, the way we try to become worthy of somebody else's time or attention. Father, let us renounce all the games that we play to impress, to promote ourselves. Let us count it the loss and step into the gift of my identity that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Let us today remember our baptism, which told us who we were, that we were beloved children of God. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.